So we flew all the drums out and we laid them on the, like the blue ice. And then we went back with pictures and we were also happy because, you know, 100 drums, we did a really good job. It looked really nice. And it's the way he looked at, at the pictures when we showed him, we're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and he's like, I'm really sorry guys, but this won't do. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. We made it to 20. This is episode 20 of Flying BC, and I really appreciate all you listeners and supporters out there. Follow me on Instagram, at Flying British Columbia, and be sure to sign up for the mailing list at flyingbc.com. I've got more details coming soon about the adventure camp at Sunia Lake Lodge on August 1st weekend. I teased that in the previous episode, and the mailing list subscribers will get first crack. On this episode, I caught up with Lyndon Hoover, a first officer with the legendary Canadian company, Ken Boric Air. I've been following his adventures flying Twin Otters and Basler DC-3s in Antarctica on Instagram and I thought he'd be a great guest for the show. He's a graduate of University of Victoria's Aviation Business Program and earned his CPL in 2017. He has some great insight into what it takes as a young commercial pilot to make connections and get your foot in the door at the jobs you want. So put on your parka and settle in for this chat with Lyndon Hoover about Antarctica and beyond. Lyndon Hoover, welcome to Flying BC. Thanks for joining Thank me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. So I, I don't actually know you in real life, but uh, I've been following you on Instagram, and um, you've been down in Antarctica flying, um, and that really caught my attention. So I was like, that seems like a wicked job. Let's get you on the show. No, definitely. Uh, it's been an interesting experience, and I'm really excited to share that. Cool. So let's start um, with, a, with a quick intro. How did you get into aviation? Um, yeah, where did you where did you start, and did you have a a background in aviation? You always wanted to do it, or was it something new? Uh, I think my grandfather takes a lot of the credit for planting the seed. He flew bush planes up until his early twenties, and then he ended up having seven kids, and he just couldn't afford to keep flying on a bush pilot salary. So he kind of grew up on his stories, and they may have grown a lot over the years, but they were amazing, and we loved him growing up. And so I think he planted that seed. But then, when I was around fourteen, we moved to Vancouver Island, and I. Uh, like grew up on Gabriola for the rest of my uh, youth and we take the ferry to school every day and that was right next to the Harbor Air seaplane base and so I'd always be waiting for the ferry and I'd just go sit over and watch the seaplanes come and go watch them like fuel them and like load the bags and how the pilots like just interact with the people and I just loved everything about it um, so right when I graduated I went to UVic for the uh, business administration aviation program they started and through that I met a lot of people got a diploma in business administration and my private license. And then I was really like excelling at that point, but then everything kind of came to a stop for a while because my friends who were finishing their commercial couldn't get a job. They were looking at two years on the ground and that was a hard sell for my parents to get a co-sign on a loan. And then student loans wouldn't like give me anything cause it's no longer accredited university program cause I graduated. And so I just kind of had to take a step back and like, how do I do this? And so I got given a job, an job opportunity in uh, Fort St. John, just laboring in the oil patch. And so I took it and we'll just do a couple months up there, a couple months home flying, just chipping away, chipping away for a few years. 
And then while I was up there, I got a call from one of the kids I went to school with in Ubik saying like, hey, we need a dock hand at Harbor Air. And I thought of you, do you want to do it? And it was kind of like the perfect opportunity that I've been waiting for. And so I took it and that's when my flying kind of really like went right for me. There was all this opportunity to talk with people who were doing what I wanted to do. And everyone I was surrounded with was also like doing their flight training. So it became this like super competitive, super supportive nature of just like, just go for it. Like, what are you waiting for? Right. And that's when everything kind of just took off. And then that's how I heard about Boric. Like all these guys go to Antarctica, they go overseas, like they go way north, like they go to Greenland. Like, doesn't that sound amazing? And I'm like, yeah, like sign me up. <laughs> and that's kind of how I ended up getting to where I am now. Awesome. It's interesting that student loan uh, story came up in the last podcast with Katie too. It's definitely a, an issue that like as soon as you're out of a university environment, you can't get the full funding for aviation. So I think I think people are working on that and um, yeah, that'd be good. I'm hearing now that they're more uh, like readily to like, I guess, give out money to people who are pursuing aviation because I kid who just got hired at Boric, he was saying that he went to them and they kind of hummed and hawed a little bit and then gave him all he needed. So I think it is changing for the better. That's good. Um, so you ended up at Ken Boric Air. Um, what was your first first job with them? So I got hired um, basically working in the office. I, it was kind of a funny story. I got hired. I was working as a dock end and then kind of just finished my commercial multi, working on my IFR. And then the chief pilot of Ken Bork Air called me on a Friday and he said, like, I know this is kind of short notice, but can you be here Monday? And I live on Vancouver Island and Calgary is a ferry ride and 12, 14 hour drive. And so I just was like, sure. All right. And ended up just blasting out there, not really knowing what the job was or what to expect. Just I couldn't say no to that opportunity. And it ended up being a, an office job where we just do flight following. We take calls from the aircraft wherever they are, just times up, times down. We call if they need fuel, book hotels, just a lot of the logistical side of it. And I'd never done an office job. I never worked with uh, computers. So that was uh, quite eye opening. And that was, but it, it gets you where you need to be. And it was uh, about a year of that. And then I hit Flightline. Nice. Was that job offer based on resumes you'd sent out or was it networking through current jobs or students, uh, old students you knew? It was definitely through networking, basically like meeting all those Harbor Air pilots and chatting with them. And I just would always try to like poke at it a bit and be like, how did you get there? Like, what was your first job? And I just kept networking and meeting more people and getting in touch with more people. And then I met a couple guys who were at Boric already and I was kind of chatting with them. And then my mentor worked with uh, Boric's chief pilot in the Maldives. And so I asked him like, hey, can I use you as a reference? And when the chief pilot called me, his first question was like, how do you know him? Hmm. And I'm like, oh, like he's my, uh, I guess you could say kind of mentor, like he's a pilot. Here he told me that if I want to fly bush planes, I need to come work for you. And then he's like, all right, show up Monday. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, definitely mentors is a really important thing to have in this industry and contacts. Um, what, how did you go about finding that mentor? Was it just a friend and um, somebody you, you knew or what? I don't know. I, I kind of always have reached out to people, whether it be on social media or in person or hanging out at the flight club. And I just, I'd hear someone or hear about someone who had this interesting story or they'd done something that I want to do. And I've never really been afraid to go up and be like, Hey, I hope this isn't weird. Do you mind answering a question or two? 
Um, or even can I send you an email and you reply when you have time? And I think for the most part, like 98% of the time, like they're totally willing to tell you their story. They love kind of sharing their love of aviation and it's a very like welcoming community. And I think that that's my biggest thing I could say is like, take that chance, put yourself out there and then kind of expand your social circle because it's often like, you don't get a job through someone, you know, it's often, Hey, I know a guy who know a guy who needs a guy tomorrow. And then kind of like you get that job through the web and it's always like someone you barely know that offers you a job. Yeah. But that connection helps. Cool. Yeah. Um, it's good advice for everybody. So after the, um, when, when you got the flight line job at Ken Boric, um, what's kind of the, what's the hierarchy there? What, what, how do you work your way in there to get the, the cool jobs, I guess? Um, basically we do a lot of work in the North to start off. We have uh, 1900s, we have King Airs, Twin Otters, and Basler DC-3s. And so it's very rare that a, someone will go right from the office to a Basler. You most often you start on the Twin Otter and the King Air. And then I think my boss just kind of like picks whoever um, is in the office first in seniority and throws them into the next open seat. And then you just do your year or two and then you can kind of go into like, hey, I want to do this. I want to go on the Basler or I want to go on some of our survey contracts in the Middle East or something like, but you kind of have to put in some time to earn the right to say, Hey, I want this. Right. Uh, so you started on the twin otter up North. Uh, yeah, I was very lucky on that. I, um, basically I thought that it was going to be a, a year and a half before I hit flight line. And I kind of was sat down and told like, Hey, we don't have a lot of space coming up right now. And then so I kind of was like a little bit lax on my studying being like, Oh, I got so much time. And then I got an email and there's a ticket in my email because I already had my PPC and they're like, I hope you're packed because you're going kid. And I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> and so I ended up spending uh, two months straight up out of Cambridge Bay, just doing uh, support for a mining company and doing exploration, just flying goods and different items to their camps. And uh, yeah, I kind of built up the North in my head without ever really Googling where I was going. I just had this like idealistic view of what it would be. Right. And it very much was uh, very different than I'd expected. So yeah, what's the, what's the reality of uh, working in the North as a pilot? Um, I never really pictured myself like working in snow pants, like flying in snow pants. It's like snow pants being probably my number one outfit and the thick ones like, and uh, I don't know. I just, I never really thought of the aspects of flying of just like all of the unloading and loading and digging out fuel drums and the physical aspect of working up north. Like I've watched all the videos, I've seen all the flying, but I guess no one really glorifies the idea of like moving and loading and unloading a couple hundred fuel drums to a fuel right. cache. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, so you go from Twin Otter. Um, what's your what's your next steps there? How, basically, I'm trying to get to the Antarctica with you. Yeah. I want to get to that pretty quickly. Yeah. So my first trip to Antarctica was uh, on the Twin Otter and it was... Uh, at the Italian base, Mario Zacchelli Station on uh, the Ross Sea, just uh, right below New Zealand. And again, I had uh, maybe built up Antarctica to what I thought it was going to be. And it very much was, uh, I guess I call it character building because the 24 hour sunlight, the total lack of uh, like Wi Fi or internet access, like you're lucky sometimes you'll get WhatsApp, but that's it. And you leave. Canada and then you have just this extreme flow of information every day 
you can talk to anyone, you can look up anything, scroll Instagram in the morning, and then you get down there and there's no Instagram, there's no Facebook. And you often like reach for your phone and you're like, why? It's not gonna work. <laughs> yeah, it's the ultimate de detox, digital yeah. detox. Very much so. So what does, um, yeah, cause I, I, you think of Antarctica, you think of like penguins and ice, but yeah. there's quite a few people who work down there now. So there's gotta be some like outposts and workstations and villages. So what's, what's sort of the mission for you guys down there? So I do think that a lot of people do think that it's very sparsely populated with a few small like outposts, but that isn't really the case nowadays. Like there's something like 40 some nations that are signed onto the treaty with 29 active on the ice like the last few years and i think there's just under 70 stations that are permanent oh, wow. along with a tourism camp uh, a couple tourism camps we work mainly work with ale so i'll only mention them um but yeah they have an amazing instagram account which i highly re recommend checking out but with the way the ice is going like they're getting they're having to close down blue ice runways due to warming oh wow and there's getting holes in them so there's a lot of construction going on to build like these giant runways in the kind of like gravel bars they have. And I think that people would be really surprised to see like how much actual construction is going on down there. Right. And then uh, day to day for you guys, it's kind of resupply and things like that. Um, basically it, it varies per contract, but I've only ever worked for the uh, Italian contract and people they partner with. And so our main thing is just flying supplies out to their different research stations, like the summer camps. And then their main thing is supporting a place called Concordia, which is um, a year-round station. It's the second most remote station on the planet. And basically it's a base where they do a bunch of research for the European Space Agency. And they just study like crew composition, how people react to eight months of isolation with no outside contact, how that affects their relationships, their blood chemistry, all of that. And then we just fly a lot of the goods in, dry goods and fresh food. Food. Um, a lot of the crew changes are through us. And they do, do do traverses, but that's just for mostly bulk fuel and like overwinter items. Gotcha. And that's pretty much what we do. We also do a lot of trips to a place called De Mondreville, which is the French station, which shares 50% of the responsibility for keeping Concordia running year round. Hmm. I saw a photo uh, from your trip this year where you, uh, you just unloaded all the fuel barrels, but then you said it was the, the wrong configuration, so you had to go and move them all over again. Yeah, so that was a place called Latel Rocks, and it was for the German program where they're doing a big program next year. And the helicopter pilot who's going to be picking the drums up gave us a drawing. And so we got the drawing. We're like, okay, we definitely understand this. So we flew all the drums out, and we laid them on the, like the blue ice, and then we went back with pictures and we were also happy because, you know, Hunter drums, we did a really good job. It looked really nice. And that's the way he looked at, at the pictures when we showed him, we're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and he's like, I'm really sorry, guys, but this won't do. And we're like, well, what do you mean? This is, this is exactly like you drew it. And he goes, yeah, I know, but I changed my mind. Oh, no. <laughs> and so we made, we made him come back out with us along with some helpers and we just rearranged the drums. So it wasn't that bad. Right. But when he first said it, we were kind of looking at each other like, is he kidding? Please say you're kidding. <laughs> so yeah, I guess they, they kind of have to plan a year and a year ahead because there's you guys are only there for a few months, right? When the flying weather's good. I think we were like just under. This is a bit of a shorter season this year due to COVID, but um, usually it's around four months for a full season, and then yeah, the eight months those guys are like Concordia are completely isolated. Wow. 
yeah. Um, so this year, you got to fly the Bazaar there. Um, have you ever flown a, a piston DC three like a regular DC three? No, I've uh, I've seen them, but I've never stepped foot in one, and I don't think I would uh, jump at the opportunity to switch over. <laughs> yeah, I, I really. Just, I, yeah, I was curious whether uh, you had been able to compare it, but it's uh, it's amazing those things are still being used, and the the Bazaars are pretty awesome performers. I definitely really enjoy the Basler and like the the comfort it gives us with uh, like turbine engines and the extra carrying capacity for we have an upgrowth so we can carry more weight and the engines themselves are quite a bit lighter than the piston engines so we end up being able to carry quite a bit more than a traditional three and I just yeah I feel a little more comfortable flying around Antarctica with turbine engines yeah do you guys have to bring spare parts and spare engines and stuff down with you just in case um, we have one spare engine that keep that we keep at McMurdo, which is the large American station, which is kind of the hub for the area, along with like stands and different major items. But in um, each plane carries around like a spare kit, and that's the day-to-day items that are you expect to break or have some like problem with. We hardly ever use them, but they're just there just in case. Right. And then each plane has an engineer assigned to it, which uh, they travel everywhere with us. Cool. Yeah, I guess you you can't really courier something down there if you needed something. <laughs> yeah. What are the biggest challenges to flying down in Antarctica? Um, is it the weather? Is it the cold? Or um, the cold is something I would have assumed would have been our biggest issue. But when we're out in the field and say we were doing digging up some seismic sensors, they were trying to measure like movement of the ice and if they had earthquakes and how it was affecting the actual islands and topography under the ice. And it was negative like 40 something when we landed. And you'd think the engines would have a trouble with that. Sometimes we'd idle one if it was really cold. We also carry a big generator with us where we haul the generator out, plug the plane in, put the plugs in, put our engine tent on, and there's no problem with it. I would say weather is something that really gives us a hard time because there are some times where it's a week or we just can't get out and do what we want to do. But when you see a big window of clear weather, you just know you're going to be really busy. Um, is that time of the year pretty good weather? Like, or are you, is it kind of off and on? It's for the most part, it's quite good weather, especially this year. We were really lucky to get many, many days of just blue sky every day. The biggest problem where Mary Zakeli is, is these giant blows that come off the plateau. They can reach well over a hundred knots at points. Wow. And then it's just no fun at all. <laughs> And then the journey to and from Antarctica looked pretty epic too, because you're flying all the way down from Canada. Um, did you also do that in the Twin Otter? Uh, yeah, so I did the trip down in the Twin Otter, and then I crew changed out to New Zealand that year. And then this year, because of COVID, we were sent down three weeks early to Punta Arenas. So we flew down commercially, which was a complete uh, bit of a disaster. We kept getting denied entry to our flights because they're like, no tourism, no tourism. We're like, no, 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 no. Like we're doing work. And they're like, no, get off. (laughs) But on the way back, it was an amazing trip. And I think it was capped off that we were flying over like El Salvador area, Guatemala, and there was an active explosion in volcano that morning. And so we, we called to the tower and we're like, should we climb? Should we divert? Like, what is your uh, routine for this? And the controller got back and they're like, there's no, like eruptions today. And I got a video on my phone because I was just 
because zoomed in and um we ended up talking to the control and like okay we got a report of an eruption it just happened and everyone in the crew was just like super excited They're like oh this is gonna be such a good story to go home with and yeah nice yeah that that run down through south america must be pretty cool and kind of doing it in a bazaar would be interesting yeah, yeah. I really enjoy how fast the topography changes, especially in like Chile, where it goes from kind of like light trees to dense forests to arid desert back to forests, like to desert again. I just really enjoy that rapid change that I never really expected or knew about. Yeah, you're saying you had uh, COVID issues going down. You, you mentioned you had a, a funny COVID test story. So we did three week quarantine in Punta Arenas, Chile. We were locked in an ALE house, which is the tourist camp. They let us use their uh, house that they have usually for guests and for crew. And we were just locked in there for 21 days. And they deliver us like flats of beer and different types of food. And so we were having a blast. Like it was, it was kind of unreal to be paid to hang out in a house and just hang out with four of your coworkers. And we all got along really well. So that was great. And then we got two COVID tests and we were all laughing. And we got in the plane and left Punta Arenas, Chile to cross to Rothera the British uh, base and they were really friendly and we're like, okay, we're home free. There's no more COVID tests, no more nonsense. And then we flew to McMurdo, the American base to wait for our clients to arrive on like one of their aircraft. And we thought everything was cool. And then we get to the American base and they're looking at us. They're like, they heard some story that what didn't like, it ended up being not true that we'd walked through the airport without masks on. Someone started a rumor. And so they immediately like quarantined us. And we were in this place called Hut 10, which is a nice hut. It's like, it's got a TV. It's nowhere near as bad as a hut sounds. <laughs> but um, the guy came in the first day and he's just wearing like, he looks like an astronaut. He's wearing like this respirator and this giant suit. And he's like, I'm here to give you COVID tests. And we're like, oh, have you ever done one before? And he goes, no, this is my first time. <laughs> and so my captain being like the most senior, he's like, I'll go first, don't worry. And the guy didn't read the form and he starts, like he just jams it in and he starts counting one, two, three, and he gets well past 10. And I'm like, he's not stopping. Like, why is he not stopping? And my captain's sliding down his chair and he's like looking around like, what's going on? And he gets to like 20 seconds. And my captain's like, please stop, please stop. And then he pulls it out and he's like, oh, like maybe that was a bit long, who's next? And the rest <laughs> of us are just standing there being like, no, no, thank you. like. We're good. Yeah, if anybody's had the nose swab, it's painful. It brings tears to your eyes. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Um, any any crazy stories of flying in Antarctica? Like, do you have any like? Um, I've been really blessed. I think just to not have any issues with any crazy uh, problems, and I think that's probably the reliability of the Basler. I'm gonna hmm. give it major credit there, but um, the weather is definitely something that gives us quite a few, uh, not worries, but just something to think about because we call for weather. Maybe we're like 45 minutes out just to make sure everything's good and contact the station we're landing at. And very often they'll be like whiteout conditions, can't see a thing. And me hearing that I'd be like, Oh, like we're going to turn back, go home. And then my captain with you know 20 years experience down there, he's like, go get someone to stand outside and look up. And so they do and they come back and they're like, Oh, it's blue sky. And I look at him like, how'd you know that? He's like, it's just a little bit of blowing snow. So it makes it appear like you can't, like it's white out, mm. but 20 feet up, it's clear as day. Right. And so like I think snow, like snow banks drifting sort of thing. Exactly. And so we ended up like landing there and I looked at him, I was like, 
I would have just turned back like when I heard the visibility is bad. And when we landed, it was perfect conditions. It was just a bit of blowing snow past the station that made it look like they had no visibility. Hmm. That's where 20 years experience gets you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're back now um, in Canada for a bit. You thought you were going to have some time off. Where? What are you up to next? So I got back and I kind of expected to have like a month or two off. And I got a text from my boss being like, hey, I'm really sorry, but something popped up. And so I, I was kind of getting bored of being home with COVID. There's not a lot going on. So I kind of was really excited about that. And I'm heading to Germany to the Alfred Werner Institute in Bremen, Germany to bring one of their aircrafts back. And we're going to transit from Bremen, Germany, do a test flight, get it signed off, and then go Bremen, Iceland, Greenland, Goose Bay, Pickle Lake, Calgary. Wow. Yeah, so you're doing both uh, both ends of the world this year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> getting as much in as I can. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so is this kind of, in Canada, I think as you, as a young commercial pilot, Ken Boric kind of is up there on the, the bucket list for people if they want, want sort of that bush life. Um, is it everything you expected it to be? I would say yes. There's a lot of things that I didn't expect coming here. Just with um, everyone sees the Instagram pictures and like, I honestly love that I've had these experiences and I wouldn't trade it for anything. But one thing I didn't expect was the isolation of like missing Christmases and birthdays and dinners and engagements and weddings. And I'm fairly young and I've already missed like a lot of that. And I wouldn't trade anything for the memories I have and the experiences I have. But that's one thing I believe I would like, I should have expected and maybe been a little less uh, disappointed when it happens. Right. Yeah. You have to make some sacrifices for the, <laughs> the experience, I guess. Yeah. I, I know that life well, cause I spent 20 years on, on the road shooting film productions and stuff. And yeah, you miss a lot of stuff. <laughs> so any lessons learned along that route that you would pass on to other commercial pilots or, or people aspiring to be commercial pilots? I think like I touched on earlier about like talking to people and just taking chances and putting yourself out there. Um, I think if you want to work in a certain industry, don't like be nervous to reach out to someone who's working in that industry. Just be kind and obviously expect rejection because it's going to happen and people are busy and they don't have time sometimes. But I think a lot of the questions you have and a lot of the ideas will be well received by people who are working in the industry or the area that you want to work in. Yeah. Cool. So what's, what's next for you? Are you going to keep doing this for a while or do you have aspirations to go to the airlines or what, what do you want to do next? I don't really know what's next. I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing right now. Well, every year I get back from the ice, especially my first season. And I'm like, I am never doing that again. Like that was no way, like just get home and make all these big statements. And then I'm already talking to my boss about going next year. So I think I'll do one more year. Maybe that'll keep going every year. I'll keep saying one more year, but I would definitely like to circle back to Harbor air. Eventually I love the atmosphere. I have nothing but amazing things to say about that whole company. And then I think the Maldives, like I probably hear that a lot from a lot of people who fly floats and that is that that just seems like the ultimate goal. And my captain I was flying with on the ice this year has been going to the Maldives since the early 2000s on and off. And he just explains it as this paradise where you work four days 
like a week and you stay at resorts and you just get like an amazing tan and life's good. And there's the way he sells it. I'm like, I don't need snow pants. Like, all right, let's go. I'm sure there's another side to that story, but the, yeah, yeah it sounds pretty yeah. good to me. Yeah. So, um, would you recommend people go through the university program like you did, or would you have done that differently? Honestly, that's, I've yet to use the diploma in anything I do. And, uh, I've yet to find anyone like a cheap powder, anyone to really give it any worth. Like I don't think they care about it, hmm. but I would say like being a few years out of school and away from that diploma, I think the connections I made with other people in my class have become like lifelong friendships in aviation and people like there's maybe 10 of us that stuck around in aviation after we graduated. And I talk to those guys regularly. Um, just about like, oh, like, oh, you're a captain here. Like one's a captain at CMA, one flies the beaver up north. One of them came to Boric. And I think just like those connections I have are super valuable. And I think that it was worth the money I spent and the time I spent to make these connections. And I don't know if that was what the university was trying to sell. I think they were just giving us a piece of paper, <laughs> but, uh, I've talked to the guys about it and they're all kind of say the same thing that like the, um, connections we got from the program with each other was worth every cent. Yeah. And that, that sounds, that sounds about right. Yeah. Cause when you go to a flying school independently, you kind of, you might see people in the clubhouse or whatever, but you're not working and learning together. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. I guess I could talk about, um, like last summer I was quite lucky to work with the, uh, NASA project at a Greenland, which mm. I'm hoping to get back on this year. And it's just basically they survey, it's called a OMG oceans melting Greenland. And they, drop probes up and down the fjords of Greenland to see the salinity change year after year to see if there's more fresh water leaving the continent. And they do also do satellite shots to see if there's more ice or less ice and kind of just judge how we're seeing melt, which is in the Arctic a big thing because there have been days when we were flying up in the northern part of Ellesmere Island, which is the northernmost island in Canada, where it was like plus 16, plus 17. Hmm. And we were walking like around in t-shirts and everyone's like, this is damn near the North pole. Excuse my language, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> but yeah, um, that's, it is yeah. shocking. Yeah. Um, has that changed kind of the way you think about things and the way you live a little bit, seeing all that firsthand? Very much so. I think because like there's a lot of, I guess, economic upsides to the ice retreating, the Northwest passage opening up. There's a lot of investment going in up North but it's also drastically going to change how the indigenous people of the Arctic have to live in scavenge and kind of like they want to live their traditional life in a lot of aspects. And I kind of think that as the ice retreats, that it's going to be harder and harder for them to do. Hmm. And I don't think that's entirely fair. Yeah. So yeah, working up North, I guess you, you, you do a lot of resupply and interaction, interacting with the first nations up there. Maybe just, just talk about that and how like remote some of these communities are and, the lifeline that aviation gives to them. Well, there's a couple of communities, especially a community called Greece Fjord, which is north of Resolute, which isn't naturally a community. These people were moved up there so that we'd uh, have a better claim to the high Arctic. Hmm. And so they're very, very remote up there. And they've kind of made a really amazing life, in my opinion, of these beautiful mountains. And they have this amazing fisheries going on. But it is very much an isolated community that requires like several flights a week bringing in the necessities for life and then we also like there's days when you're flying in a skidoo and then you're flying out um 
different pelts of different animals or a polar bear skin. And I think the first time I loaded a polar bear skin, I was just kind of in awe being like, are you kidding me? Like taking like, I was just looking at it. I was like, this is so eerie. And the guy was saying like, oh, we didn't want to shoot it, but it just, it was wandering into the town and it was like on my deck. So I had to, and I was like, this is what a weird life, like so foreign to what I experienced growing up. Nice. Yeah. Um, what's some, what's the weirdest thing you've ever flown in or out of somewhere? Um, I think it would have to be these, um, I'm running a blank on the name. They're a large type of goat that, uh, lives in the high Arctic muskox. Oh yeah. yeah. And they, uh, they killed a bunch of muskox and we just flew like a load of muskox uh, pelts out and I was just loading pelt after pelt of muskox and it was just unbelievable because because I never I, I was like oh what what kind of like uh are these like elk they're like no no it's a goat I'm like yeah, I didn't know I did not know muskox were goats <laughs> yeah like they're That's of cool. the same family yeah and then I would say I landed a place that was just south of Resolute and it's a traditional like a uh, fishing village in the summer where the Arctic char come out of the lakes into the ocean and then go back up and so it's, they go there in the summer and they harvest a lot of these giant Arctic char. And they also harvest narwhal, two narwhal a year. And we'd landed there and the guy just harpooned a narwhal and had brought it ashore. And I had never seen a narwhal. I'd never been anywhere close to a narwhal. So I kind of wandered over and was asking him questions about it. And then he just cut off a big chunk of the blubber and threw it in his mouth. And my jaw kind of dropped. I'm like, you don't cook it? You don't like, can you explain it? And he's like, he just cut off a small little chunk and he's like, handed it to me and he had his hand out. And I was like, oh, I, I, I can't be rude. And so I ended up putting it in my mouth and it was chewing away. And my captain was kind of sitting there just laughing and watching me because I was chewing away because I'd, I'd never tasted anything like it. It was very waxy, very uh, like fatty. Right. And I was like green for the rest of the day. But the guy, as we were leaving, he's like, don't worry, don't worry. Like if your body can't um, like process it, it'll just come out of you like rain. And I'm like, Ex- excuse me? And I was like, looking at my captain, my captain's just laughing. And I was like, no, no, wait, 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 what? Why didn't you say that before? <laughs> As you're about to get on a plane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I was fine. Yeah. And it ended up being like, uh, I have some pictures on my phone, but it was, yeah, a, a pretty day. Yeah. Uh, experience that's, I really cherish. That's cool. Yeah, I guess that's what kind of all about, right? The, being a pilot is all about <laughs> gathering experiences like that. Yeah, very yeah. much. Cool. So where can people find you uh, if they want to follow you on Instagram, things like that? Uh, my Instagram is just at Lyndon Hoover. And if anyone has any questions about, you know, the industry and what they think, I'm always uh, open to chat and talk about like how I think they should do something or you don't have to listen to what I have to say. But if you're looking for an opinion, I'm always willing to give one. And it might take a while for me to get back to you. But yeah, I'm always open for that. Yeah, it depends where in the world you are, I guess. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But but I can say I got a I got a message back from the Antarctic because you replied to me. So. <laughs> oh, we got we got very lucky. Uh, one of the guys somehow got internet on his laptop, and he was uh, for like one hour a day at like midnight. He would uh, open his uh, like Wi-Fi and share us the connection, and so we'd all be sitting on the table like kind of like criminals getting on when the Wi-Fi. Everybody else is everybody yeah. else is asleep. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me. That was awesome. Yes, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Lyndon and all my guests for taking the time to chat with me. You can check out his Instagram at Lyndon Hoover, L-I-N-D-E-N 
H-O-O-V-E-R. And I'll put the link to that and the ALE accounts he mentioned in the show notes. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram, at Flying British Columbia. I try and post lots of photos and videos. I recently did an air-to-air shoot with a Piper Cub. And as spring comes around, hopefully we'll get out and do some more shoots. And as I mentioned at the show open, head to flyingbc.com to join the mailing list. You won't want to miss the Flying BC Aviation Adventure Camp, held at the beautiful Sunia Lake Lodge, featuring survival and mountain flying seminars, backcountry flyouts, and world-class R&R, including some of the best fishing I've ever seen. With spring finally arriving, I hope you too can get out for some flying adventures. Stay safe, keep your head up, and I hope to see you in an airport soon. And now, you have control.